All right, so let's do a recap. So we're not gonna recap what Chad taught. We're gonna recap where we were in Philippians. Uh, not that that's not good to recap, but we should have recapped some of it in our groups on Thursday night. Talked a little bit about, especially out of Psalms where Chad taught, which was a phenomenal study that he did. Um, and we listened to it that day. Um, Chad sent the recording, phenomenal. So we're not gonna recap that. We're gonna get back into Philippians, right? We finished chapter two last time we were together. So we're gonna start with Philippians chapter three. But just to kind of set the stage, if you remember what we were talking about, we gave kind of three big points about Paul and who he said um, Epaphroditus was to him. And he talked about him being a uh, fellow brother and a fellow worker and a fellow soldier in Christ. And so I it makes sense that we can all kind of fill that role with each other, that we are fellow brothers and sisters, that we are fellow workers, and that we are fellow soldiers in Christ Jesus. And we kind of talked a little bit about, <clears throat> excuse me, what that looks like, right? As fellow workers, we work heartily, as it says in Colossians 3. So we are striving, we are working hard out of our faith, not for our salvation, but from our salvation. Um, as fellow brothers and sisters, uh, you know, we do the will of God. We love our church family. We are fellow heirs with Christ. So we are all family. So we're family. We work together. And then finally, as soldiers, we wear the whole armor of God. We suffer together as good soldiers, as Paul told Timothy. And we engage in good warfare also, as he, as he told Timothy. We're obedient. We're mission-focused. We practice and keep our tools sharp. We're loyal to one another and to the Lord, and we exercise our faith. But when we talk, when we talk about being soldiers, we don't look for victory in our own work or in our own minds. What we look for is victory in the Lord, right? We, that's our reverence to him. Uh, when we exercise our faith, we see victory in the Lord, and we never become discouraged. Why? Because we've all read the end of the book, and we know God wins, right? So, fellow brothers and sisters fellow workers, and fellow soldiers in Jesus Christ. So let's jump into Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> this might be the largest group of verses that we've ever done in this group in almost a year and a half, but they, it all fits together, so we'll get it all in in this time. <clears throat> so if you're in your Bible, it's Philippians. It is chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. And this is what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's a lot in there. There's a lot theologically. There's a lot about his lesson that he's teaching them. And if you notice in Philippians, we're talking about joy, joy, joy. And this is like this weird kind of shift in the middle of the letter, which is where he uses that word finally. <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? So we're going to see this kind of spot in the middle where Paul shifts gears. And then he'll reshift gears and get back into his message. But he never completely leaves joy as part of the overarching theme of his book here. So finally, in this word that he uses, it's not really a closing statement. Like if you or I were given a business speech or you were teaching with the students, you're like, all right, finally this. That's not really what that word means. It's kind of weird. So he, and we know because he's only halfway through his letter that he's not prepping for the end. And he actually is going to use that word again. The better translation of that word from Greek is, and the rest. So it's like you're going to say, and the rest of the story is, it just doesn't, if, if I can use this word properly, transliterate really well. It transliterates as the word finally, but it doesn't really mean it. Does that make sense? So when you take it from Greek into English, it says finally, but it's not what it means. It actually means, all right, here's the rest of the story, if you will. So here comes the rest of the story. So Paul here keeps up his theme of joy, and he uses this term. You can write this down if you want put it to memory, listen to it later, write it down. This is something you will hear probably Christians say to each other, which is this is Cairo and Curios, Cairo and Curios, which would be rejoice in the Lord. It would have been something, a common phrase Christians would have used with each other and Paul would have used with, uh, with the people he would have teaching. Cairo and Curios, rejoice in the Lord. So very popular thing. And it's really like a glad salutation. It would have been something like rejoice in the Lord, right? How an opener or a closer always find joy in God's and a salutation. It's how we hail our king. So one of the things Paul is telling them here when he talks about this trouble at the beginning, um, where he says to write all things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you is what he's saying is he doesn't find trouble in sending them this message. Um, he knows it's best for their safety. You can see some repetitive nature in Paul when he says something is right or wrong. It's like he's driving the point home. It's like that foot stamp, right? And sometimes when we hear things over and over, we kind of nod our heads like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know, Paul, right? Like, yeah, I've heard that before and I don't need to hear it again. We do this often with the tough things to hear. It's like your kids, right? When you tell your kids something that's wrong and they're like, yeah, mom, I know. Well, I'm telling you because I have to constantly remind you that it's wrong, right? That's what Paul's saying. He's like, it's okay for me to keep reminding you because it's best for you, right? The things we don't want to hear, we give the yeah, yeah, kind of nod to. Like, yeah, yeah, Paul, I've heard you. And Paul's like, no, it's safer for you if I keep drilling this into you. You need to hear it from me, right? Paul's teaching us that it's worth saying again and again if it's safe for them. And what we can take out of this is that for us, when the Bible teaches us lessons that are hard or lessons that are repetitive or oftentimes 
Those are the things that we need to hear. Paul's not doing it because he's losing traction on his message. He's like, I need you to get the point here, right? But this is the problem with the world, is the world has programmed us to hear only the things that we want to hear. Um, the things that make us happy. Uh, see, a message of just joy, that's easy to hear over and over. A message that makes us happy, we can hear over and over. Knowing that we are loved by God is an easy message to hear. You're loved by God. I love hearing that. Of course, you're saved. I love hearing that. I know. You should do this right. Eh, maybe I don't want to hear that as much because maybe it kind of conflicts with the way that I'm living or maybe it makes me feel like I should do a little better, right? So those messages are good for us, just like they're good in reproof for our children or raising up our children. We don't repeat things to them because it's bad for them. We repeat it to them because it's good for them to grow in, right? Sometimes we need someone to just sit us down, even as adults, admittedly, right? And say some things over and over and stress the hard spots. Any of you that have been married for more than about a week know this, especially if you're a dude, you just need your wife to tell you over and over the things that you are doing wrong. In my case, Carol, right? I tell her over and over what she's doing wrong and she still doesn't do them right. Ooh. I love you, baby. I'm we'll just... stop We'll talk, about, we'll talk about that later, all right? Safety I, uh, right? Safety in numbers. A lot of guys here. I might be safe. Probably not. Anyway, so Paul's going to use a term next um, that's a twist on Jews and Gentiles, okay? So it's this word dogs. Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. It was kind of their way of being like, you're not in the club. You're not saved. You're not of the circumcision. You're not one of us. You are dogs, and the word is kuon, and it doesn't mean dog, but it translates as dogs. This is another one of those uh, strange words. And it's, it's not uh, derogatory in the way that you would call somebody an animal, like you dog. But what it is, is it's like saying they are of an impure mind, right? You're unfit to be part of us because you are not part of the tribe. You can't be saved because you're not an Israelite. You're not a Jew. You're a dog. You're lesser than. Your mind can't even get around the idea of what it's like to be saved. So this is like one of the worst slanders you could possibly call somebody. Now, we've already studied regularly that Paul is quite clear that people who are saved, because remember, he is the, uh, the apostle to those who are not Jews, the Gentiles. He is telling them that they have been grafted in. They have been adopted. They are fellow heirs. They make their way in. So that's me. I'm a Gentile, not a Jew. I am in the family. But there's this group of people that doesn't want him to, to feel that way. And we're going to talk about them a little bit. We've talked about them before. And what he says about them is this. This insult that Paul, now Paul is saying this. Look out for the dogs. He's not saying look out for the Gentiles. He's saying look out for the Jews. So he's twisting what the Jews would call the Gentiles and he's looking at the Jews and saying, look out for those dogs. They are of impure mind. It's one of the harshest things we can hear him say. And then he also, he goes further and he says, look out for those evildoers. Hold on, they're Jews. They practice the law. They are in the family. He's like, no, they're evildoers. They are dogs. They're of impure mind. They mutilate the flesh. Okay, here we go. Now we know what he's talking about. They mutilate the flesh right? Sounds kind of weird. How do they mutilate the flesh of the circumcision? 
So this is right back to the Judaizers. He's, he's referring back to the Jews that insist that circumcision is the only way to be grafted into the family, right? <clears throat> it's the only way to be righteous. Following the law is the only way to get to God. It's the only way to atone for one's sins. But from this, we can see Judaizers are a problem here. We saw that there were Judaizers were a problem in Galatia in, you know, last year. Over the last number of months, we did Ephesians. We saw that Judaizers were, were a problem there. And all they are doing is telling people they have to work for their salvation over and over and over. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. You can't be saved unless you're circumcised. You can't be saved unless you follow the Jewish laws. You have to go to the atonement. You have to buy two doves and bring it to the temple. You have to do these things or you can't be saved. Now, the problem is they're making their way into the Christian circles and they're telling them, unless you do these things, you're not in. And Paul's like, no. You can see in the earlier chapters we read, Paul called them Judaizers. He said that they didn't have the right way to do it, and he was nice. And in this case, he's like, they're dogs, and they're evil, and they are mutilating the flesh. Like, he's had it, right? Um, so this is pretty insulting. He's very clear on this. So we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, period. And we've been driving that home here because I want you to hear it. There's, what can you do to be saved? There's only one word you can use. Nothing, right? It's Jesus Christ who saves. And we can debate the order of salvation, but only Christ saves. That's it, right? Um, he tells the Philippians that we are the circumcision next. And that's kind of odd. So he tells them you don't need to be circumcised. And then he says, we are the circumcision. So how does that work? We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, but put no confidence in the flesh. Now it's getting confusing. Paul's like, those people are dogs, but we are the circumcision, but we put no confidence in the flesh. So what is it, Paul? Just give me the whole story here. So this is really the answer to this. How are we as believers who are not Jews, the circumcision? So we've got to turn back some time here. So if you look back into Deuteronomy, you have this, this whole story about Moses moving the Israelites up to the promised land. And it's kind of a tragic story, right? Because Moses never makes it in, right? He's been working and working and working. And he's been faithful at times and unfaithful at times. And I imagine it's, it's, it's been tough for Moses who stuttered and didn't speak right. And he was old and he's dealing with these people who wanted to mess up all the time. And he's probably wore out. But God's like, I still need you to be faithful in the midst of this. Moses is moving these, these people up to the promised land. And right when he gets to Moab, he gets to Moab and, and they see the promised land. They are ready. This is about to happen, right? He writes a song to Israel and then he dies because God won't let him go into the promised land. Because remember, it's Joshua who takes him into the promised land. God's telling him what's going to happen when they enter the promised land. And one of the things that Israel knew set them apart from the other cultures around them was what? They were circumcised. So all the men were circumcised. This is one of the things that makes us different from everybody else. But he says this, God says this to Israel in Deuteronomy 36, not 36, but 30 verse 6. He says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So the circumcision is not about removing the flesh. 
circumcision is about God working in your heart. And this is why when Paul says, we are the circumcision, he's saying, we are the ones that God has done the work on the flesh of our heart, right? The Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you is the circumcision of the heart. So what now sets us apart from other cultures, other religions, is the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We've had this talk a lot lately about what makes us the true Christians, right? In the world, even in the contemporary church, there's a lot of kind of universalism. Like I can say I'm a Christian. It doesn't necessarily have to be evidence of it, but I can just say I'm a Christian. No, there needs to be evidence. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit produces fruit. The Holy Spirit produces wisdom. You will know who your God is. You will know how he saved you. And as a result of that, we produce good fruit. There's evidences of this. That is the circumcision that we look for. Colossians 2.10 says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we get to see this work that is done in us. It is not with hands that we are circumcised, but with the work of the Holy Spirit, right? And this is actually great news. And this is the joy part of this verse. It should bring you joy. It should bring you reliance in Christ, that the Holy Spirit lives in you and circumcises your heart. It's hard to put it in perspective today because we're so separated from the Levitical law. So I'm going to try to paint you this picture, right? We're so separated from what a Jew really looked like at the time. How, what a tough message this would have been for him, for them, and how hard it would have been but they had to strive day in and day out to be perfect for God. Just imagine this for a minute. You had to watch what you did for work, how you did for work, and when you worked. You couldn't work on the Sabbath. And then they made a whole bunch of laws of what work looked like. So they would prepare like the days prior for the Sabbath so that everything you did wasn't work because that was sinning. Like starting a fire was work. So imagine living in the first century. I mean, they didn't have a gas stove like we did. They you know, didn't have electricity like we did. And even some of those things today are even exacerbated. So they make it very hard for the Jews there living there now. They make it very hard. You had to watch what you ate. You had to watch who you married. You had to watch how you followed ceremonies and feasts. Every single day is a struggle. Every single thing you did was a struggle to find your way to God. Everything you did all day, if you were a real Jew, would be, what am I doing today that I'm doing wrong so I can fix it, so I can make it to Christ? Imagine living your life like this all the time. We just have no perspective. Can you imagine getting up in the morning and making sure before your feet hit the floor that the socks that you have on are making out of the, made out of the right material so it kept you separated from your God? We don't need this struggle. We don't need this struggle. And a life is hard enough for us, right? We can find joy in the fact that we're saved. And guess what? You're safe. You're safe because he lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you and you are completely safe because of that. People trying to make <clears throat> you work for your salvation are wrong. A works-based faith um, makes Paul so mad at them that he's just ripping into them. He's calling them out. These Judaizers, he's done with them, right? But Paul's not going to stop there. He's going to take it a little bit further. What he tells them next as a Jew is, is really important because this is what Paul's going to say in a nutshell, and I'm going to read it, right? Remember who Paul is. He's a Jew of Jews. He's a Pharisee. And if anyone's worthy of salvation, it's him. He's 
perfect. He is the Jew of Jews. He's like, I, I'm the example. Listen to this. We'll go to verse 4, and we'll read through verse 6. It's, Paul says this to them, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Really? You just told us you can't have confidence? He's like, I myself can. Check this out. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm better than all of you. None of you are nowhere near as good as I am. Circumcision on the eighth day, right? As commanded in the law of the people of Israel. So he's a direct descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. So we know he's a real Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So that's like saying I'm more Hebrew than Hebrews. I am the best as to the law of Pharisees. So remember the Pharisees were like, the most legalistic, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So he's like, not only am I a Jew, if you're something else, I'm putting you down. You're not anywhere near us. So remember, because it's Paul who's actually out there running around killing Christians to include the overseeing the stoning of Stephen. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I followed the law perfectly. That's a pretty tough statement to say, to say, right? So he is saying here, I am perfect. Paul is the perfect Jew of the circumcision. If anyone deserves salvation, it's him. So then why not just do what he did? That seems pretty easy because you can't. Paul's like, if I'm the example, you can't even do this. You can't be as good as me. And even I'm not getting in. And this is what he says. Whatever gain I had. I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. It just doesn't work. I could keep doing this. I could be a Pharisee, Jew of Jews, circumcised in the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Israelite, righteous. It doesn't work. I count it all as loss. So the next few, few verses here show that Paul has set aside his reliance on his own power completely. And this is the lesson for us, to set aside your own power to be saved. He surrendered to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. It's tough to say this because we want to say, but yeah, all these things matter. Nothing matters. No effort is enough in light of gaining Christ. That's it. That's the answer. And we must remember that there is nothing, nothing, nothing that we can do to earn salvation. You are safe in Him. And we're going to talk about why that's even more important in a minute. Why count it all as loss or as rubbish? Why? Why count it all as loss? Paul tells us to be found in Him. This is why I set everything else aside. So that I can be found in Him, not having a righteousness of His own from the law, but from faith in Christ Jesus, righteousness from God. And he's clear that this righteousness depends on nothing except your faith, right? So imagine all the work you tried to do to be good. Imagine all the things you do in your life right now to try to be good, like try to be a good person. All the things you try to do, like try to be a good neighbor, I try to help people, I try to do these things to try to be good. I'm not saying that's bad. Those things are, it's good. It's good to be a good neighbor. It's good to be a good friend. It's good to be 
holy, if you will, set aside. Those are all good things. We're not saying that those things are necessarily bad or come from a bad place. But what we're saying is imagine trying to do these things so that you can be good. How much work do you need to do to get into heaven? How much? How much is enough? Anybody know the answer? How much work is enough? Where's the measuring line? If we're going to make a line on the wall, where would we put it? How much work do you need to do to fill up the bucket? So that guy goes, ding, 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 there you go. You make it into heaven. You know, how many homeless shelters did I feed somebody at? I get to make some lines down here. You know, how many people did I give money to that just, you know, to be here? How many people did I tell about Christ that fills my bucket? Of, how much? How much is enough? Paul says that there's a very clear difference here between your works and your faith. They are completely, two completely different things. And you may attain, you can attain some sort of righteousness. I'm not saying you can't be righteous by the way you act or the way you walk out your life or the way you look or the way you talk to people. But only faith in Christ alone has the power to resurrect and share in his sufferings and becoming like him in death. When we become like him in death, that's what allows us to join in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? That saving power. I'm going to read something that's going to take just a minute. But as we start to close this thing up, as I was reading out of John Calvin's commentary, which is like 500 years old, <laughs> I'm reading out of this thing this weekend. It's a phenomenal uh, book, and it's a little hard sometimes to, you have to read things over and over. It's written a little odd, but it's such a good commentary. I want to read you, when he closed this section of Scripture, what his comments were. <clears throat> It'll be a little abridged, if you will, but John Calvin says this, this, however, is a choice consolation that in all our miseries, we are partakers of Christ's cross. If we are his members, so that through afflictions, the way is opened up for us to everlasting blessedness. It's like all the stuff that's hard in your life when you are striving towards him, the things that just aren't going right, they're just all part of the blessing that you're going to gain when you just endure. God knows life's going to be hard. Paul knows life's going to be hard. Life is harder for some than others, but nonetheless, you endure these things and you are faithful and you continue to strive out of your salvation. And he, he counts it all as your blessedness. He says this as well. We enjoy, however, in the meantime, this consolation that the end is everlasting blessedness. For the death of Christ is connected with the resurrection. Hence, Paul says that he is conformed to his death, that he may attain the glory of resurrection. The phrase, if by any means, does not indicate doubt, but expresses difficulty with a view to stimulate our earnest endeavor, for it is no light contest, inasmuch as we must struggle against so many and so serious hindrances. And this is... What I really want to drive home with you today. Don't raise your hands. <laughs> here's, here's a spot where I'm going to ask a question only for rhetorical purposes, but don't raise your hands. This is where it all comes together. In this room, who of you here has done anything perfect this week and feels like they're ready to enter into the kingdom of heaven based on that thing that you did? Who here did something or worked hard enough or did all the right things that in your head you're like, I did it. Friday came, 
if Jesus comes back tomorrow morning, like front of the line, you're going to get a high five from Jesus. And he was like, that was the best week I've seen in thousands of years. You crushed it. Anybody? Anybody? Anybody do it? Anybody? That's what I thought. So now for the next question. And feel free to raise your hands here. So this one's not rhetorical. This will be a real question from Jeff to all of you. Feel free to raise your hands or just laugh. It's totally up to you. How many of you can't think of anything you did this week that you really did right? <laughs> okay. Anything? Did you anything at all that was actually right? I mean, you may have done some things well. <laughs> you know, you may have done some things adequately. But anybody do anything like right? We'll put it in the category of absolutely no mistakes done perfectly. It was right. Anybody? I didn't think so. But I'll ask you another question just so that we can clear it up. Because I know there's probably, did anybody do anything that was close to right? Anybody close? Even close. I think so. Okay. How about how many of you knowingly did things you knew were not right or knew were not good? Anybody? This isn't rhetorical. Go ahead. You can all put your hands up. Go ahead. All of you. So I know some of you did. I know all of you did things that if you look back on it this week, you were like, I could have done that better. I could have said that better. I could have been more loving. That was outright sinful. I could have just given more of my time. I could have given more of my money. I could have given more of my talents. Whatever it might be, fill in the blank. You could have been a better example of a Christian in your walk this week somehow. I know you could. Because the example is Paul, and none of us are that. So none of us are righteous. This is kind of the standard that we look for, right? Christ offers us perfection in him. So that when I look back on my week, and I know I screwed everything up, I'm like, it is a good thing that Christ is the one who paid for my sin, because there's no way I am going to make it on my own. There's just not a way. Through his work on the cross, through his resurrection power, through him we are justified, through him we are sanctified, through him we are glorified and made perfect so that we can enter into eternity in heaven with the Father. It's through him and only him and we can't do it. And that is good news because as we just looked at our week, unless I miss somebody, I can't see everybody in the room. But maybe somebody did everything right, but I don't think anybody raised their hand when they said everything right. So I'm assuming we all need Jesus to do that work. So this is my encouragement to you. Since we know that there's no work you can do to earn that resurrection power, and the power only exists in his atoning work, atoning work on the cross, I want you to do this this week. This is it. This is the goal I want you to set. Whatever fears you have, I want you to set them aside. Set aside the things you're afraid of. Put it on Christ. Put it on the cross. Set aside your doubts. And the things that you doubt in your life, set them aside. Set those doubts aside. Christ has saved you. It is done. The work is finished. He said it was finished. Set aside your inadequacies. There are things that we are never going to succeed at. It doesn't mean that you're inadequate. It means the world is rotten. It means that Satan will continue to whisper in your ear, you're not good enough. And he will do it until he drags you down with him. 
Do not let him whisper that in your ear. And if you hear it, I'm not good enough, the next thing in your mind should be like, I have Jesus. That's it. And you know what? It doesn't matter if I'm not good enough because he is. And I am his. And he has won. Set aside the things in the world that you feel you earned under your own power. Because guess what? You didn't earn any of it. I'm not saying you didn't go work a job and get paid money, but it's that job that you have, that job's from Christ. That crop you till, that's from Christ. That car you have, that house you have, it's from Christ. Having a new house, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to get things from God. Not that we don't work hard and not that we shouldn't work hard, but those are reciprocal of his saving grace. And he has grace on everybody to give them time to meet him, by the way the good and the bad. So set those things aside that you realize get in the way. I also want you to do this. Set aside the things you do that get in the way of realizing he has saved your soul. Those things that you're like, I think I can just get away with this. He has saved you. Set it aside. He's got you. You don't need to fill your heart, your head, your mind, your eyes, your tongue with things of the world. He has got you. And why do we do these things? We do them so that we can be found righteous in God and know the power of his resurrection. It's not about the work of setting these things aside. We set them aside because we know his saving grace. I want you to find your joy this week in that power. Find your joy this week in that power that you are saved Find your joy this week and that you are saved. And the struggles that you bear are sharing in Christ's sufferings. That's what Paul says here. That we share in Christ's sufferings. You know why? Because he's got you. He has saved you. And you belong to the king. You belong to the king. The king of kings. And that, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for you. We are, thank you. we are thankful for your saving grace. We are thankful for the salvation that only you can provide. We are thank you for the atonement only you can provide. We are thank you for the sanctification only you can provide. We are thank you for the justification only you can provide. We are thankful for our future glorification that comes only through you, Lord. We are thankful for your son, Jesus who came and provided a way for us that we might understand the power in his resurrection. And we ask, us, we ask, Lord, that you help us with your Holy Spirit's power to set aside the things that get in the way of realizing that we belong to you, that we belong to the one who heals relationships. We belong to the one who maintains our lives and provides every breath. We belong to the one who blesses us with our bounty. We belong to the one who gives us our families and gives us our kids. We belong to the one who is the king of kings. The one who the universe is his footstool. Father, we just ask that you remind us of that amazing power. That power that manifests itself in grace. We are thankful for you, Lord, and we are thankful for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.